Oh, good morning. It is a pleasure to be here, an honor to be here with you this morning. Um, my wife and I recently watched the show The Queen's Gambit. Apparently, we're not the only ones to have done so over the last number of weeks. It is a hard, sometimes brutal, and not kid-friendly work. But it's a story that follows a chess prodigy from her time as a little girl to her time as a young woman. And the whole show, it feels like you're waiting for the whole thing to fall apart. If you've seen it, you know what I mean. It, there's this sense, the pacing of the show, the way they use the lighting, the music, everything about it. You're just waiting. Every turn, every scene walks forward in this slow, somehow weirdly ominous, not quite terrible, not quite right, except for the scenes when you're sure it is quite terrible, uh, pacing. Now, I don't want to give too much away around it, but the whole show carries this sense of a person cut off from friends, from her parents, from everything around her that's happening in the world. She only knows chess. That's the only moment when she comes alive. Everything else floats by and is and then is not. She observes everything almost from the outside. Only chess tethers her to the world, and even that carries every mark of pure escape for her. And I don't want to give away how the show works towards trying to resolve that dynamic, but throughout it expresses something in that feeling, that sense, that I think a lot of us feel. An ethos, this unspoken feeling that, like in the series, it looms and never is fully spoken. And so we give ourselves, like this young woman, to all kinds of things to take the edge off that feeling a bit. To drinking, to work, to games, to drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And we do it not because we're walking around just looking for a good time, but at least sometimes because there's nothing else to do. It's where we go. We need to drown out silence that haunts that ominous feeling that there's a way in which I'm cut off and everything is just passing by and I don't know how to engage it. Psalm 63 that we read is, I think, a particularly poignant uh, psalm, poem, for us who have felt that. Largely because while David here, who wrote the psalm, is quite literally cut off from what he loves most, He's cut off from society, he's cut off from his role as king, from worship, his calling, from his friends. Nonetheless, he offers almost a perfect counterpoint, another way to enter and address the kind of uh, existential angst of the queen's gambit, tethered to the world not through chess, but not floating from one thing to another, always on the outside, but tethered even while cut off to a world that is deeper, that's bigger, larger than our own, even in the midst of injustice. But we have to do some work before we dive right into the psalm. We have to do some work on our imaginations uh, because the whole thing has to do with his longing to be in worship. He would say to be at church, to be where God is found, where I have seen God, in the sanctuary, as he puts it. 
And that is hardly the longing most people wake up on a Sunday morning or any morning feeling. Right? If you are part of the church and you already have come to love her, then you'll find it easier to hear the psalmist. I confess this psalm has often been on my lips, in my mind and heart over the last year. I love worship. I love coming here and having the air filled with song and singing, feeling the bodies around and hugging and shaking hands. And it has felt, even for those of us who can be here under these conditions, it's felt a little hollowed out. So I hear the psalm and it resonates deeply as it is, but that puts me in a minority and I have to recognize that. That's not where most people wake up on a Sunday morning and feel. And what I want is to help us do justice to what the psalmist is saying. And then, no surprise perhaps, I'm preaching here, I'm going to suggest that what he proposes is actually a much truer and richer way to engage our actual world. So first, our imaginations. I want to start with the reality of sacred space. It's a concept that has taken quite a beating over the last number of generations. It's been one of the less noticed but deeply significant casualties of the last, I don't know, 200 years. Pick a number, it doesn't matter. It's a collapse over the last number of generations. What one writer calls the transcendent and the imminent. Our world was once imagined as full of things that were huge, bigger than we were, outside, above, looming behind and above and around everything that we see, forces that are outside our control, realities that are outside our control. We were at the mercy of things greater than ourselves, transcendent, things above. The world then collapsed, that world, and it became a world with nothing that had to be higher, nothing beyond, nothing greater, nothing outside of our control. It's just the current limits of science, of technology. That's the limitations. A pandemic might shake that belief for some. One little bat eventually making its way into the food chain in one little place in China, and the entirety of the global economy and life comes screeching to a halt. But for many others, it's just another instance of, well, that's just the limits of science and technology. Let's just push through that. And I want to say, then what? <laughs> Wait for the next one, I suppose. But the collapse of anything transcendent it's left with this world without sacred spaces. Because a sacred space is that place where that larger world touches the world that we touch and see all around us. It's seen as a quaint concept, a sacred space, belonging to a previous era, tied to words like superstition. There's very little that is outside us and so meets us somewhere. I've been able to take a group of students over the last uh, few years to Israel to see various sites and places around. And I'm going again, if any of you are students and want to go, it's an amazing trip, let me know. <laughs> but one of the cultural shocks for the students is that we walk into a world where there are still sacred spaces, very 
much. And some get offended that when you visit the sites, it doesn't matter what time of year it is, how hot it is, you have to have coverings over your shoulders and down to your knees, man and woman alike. But that's because it's a sacred space. You're not allowed to walk in here as though it was anywhere else, as though it was the beach, as though it was something different. If you have ever buried a loved one, then you know a bit more of what sacred space is. Nowhere is our futility to wrestle control over everything imminent more pronounced than when you're at a deathbed. When you walk up to the grave of a loved one, you tread differently. You just do. You speak differently. It's a place that is set apart from all the rest of the world, and you act like it. What makes it sacred is that the loved one is there. Or it's a place where you touch that world, where that loved one existed, and so it becomes sacred for you. Places hold memories, as we say. That is, that's the place where I touch that memory. It holds it as a place. In the Bible, um, from front to back, what makes a thing sacred is God's presence. God is present there. Uh, the dirt where Moses stood in front of the burning bush just an hour before, it was just dirt. But then in that moment, when the Lord came and was there and having a bush burning without being destroyed, now that dirt is sacred. Nothing changed in the dirt. It was still dirt. But that world that is bigger, outside, God himself, who is the fullness of all, that's where he touched. This is the way that David thinks of the sanctuary, what he calls the sanctuary here, the tabernacle, the place of worship. That's where God's presence is found. And so that's where the difference between that other bigger world and our world for David, it's, it's this thin when he's there. It's just a hair's breadth away when I'm there. And so he loves to be there. He loves to go there. Hold all of that in your mind when you read this. Not a lot of the Psalms are given a little explanation of its setting at the beginning. So when they do, we're meant to imagine that for the sake of reading the Psalm well. David is the rightful king there. He shouldn't be in the wilderness of Judah. I think the most likely setting for this in David's reign as king is when he's an older Man, he's reigned for a while, but he's driven into the wilderness by his son Absalom. It's an ironic name if there ever was one. Absalom means my father brings peace or peace be to my father. <laughs> but David is unjustly driven out into the wilderness because Absalom sets up a coup and gets commanders of the army on his side. You can find the story about this, the narrative about this in the book called 2 Samuel, if you have a Bible, or you can just Google 2 Samuel 15 and 16. And even there, in that narrative, it makes a point of noting that David passes right by the place of worship as he's driven out of Jerusalem and goes to the wilderness. 
the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne that represents where God sits. And he goes into the wilderness in southern Judah, south of Jerusalem. Now, I grew up in the desert on the border with Mexico. But when I first visited the desert that the wilderness mentioned here, my first thought was, wow, now this is a desert. <laughs> it makes the place where I grew up that gets around four inches of rain a year, makes it feel like a verdant pasture. There is so little rain. No agriculture naturally growing there. Very few settlements, even to this day. It's where no one lived in the ancient world except wild animals like the jackals that feed on the very leftovers of the leftovers. And so you can see the leading metaphor in the psalm was a fairly obvious choice. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I love that the thing David longs for doesn't say, I miss my throne. I miss the influence that I had when I was at the very center and the pinnacle of life in the country. I miss my bed. I miss my friends. I have no doubt he missed all those things. But he longs to be with God. And so he longs to be in the sanctuary where I have seen you. It would be worth spending a lot of time just on that line for an Israelite to say, an Orthodox Israelite, I have seen you in the sanctuary. But it's a strikingly different view than most of us would feel in our world. The bed, the home, the stuff that you can touch, that's the thing that's missed. Going out to eat, sitting over a nice bottle of wine, hearing conversations around you, going on dates. These are things I miss. If we can just get back to normal. But that's not the world that David lives in, not the way he imagines, he thinks of the world. In the Queen's Gambit, the lead character walks through the world in this sense of detachment. You're always trying and hoping and wondering, will she engage the actual world that's right there in front of her? But it's a sense of a detachment you find in lots of stories and novels. Um, more famous, at least in a previous generation, is Albert Camus, a French writer, Algerian, uh, his novel, The Stranger where a young man walks through the world and because he sees the absurdity of a world where it's just imminent, just the stuff we touch and see and then ends in death, it's an absurd world. And so he walks through detached, just passes through everything, a stranger to everything he sees. He is the perfect stranger. Or Camus' novel, The Plague, just a little more relevant to our own day. The plague, of course, being a symbol, the reality of death. You will catch the plague. What does it look like to live in a world where you walk every day knowing you will catch the plague and everything then feels meaningless? Death once more became, becomes the main thing that exposes the limits of our little tangible world. 
Now the solution for Camus was somehow you just have to smile. Embrace the absurdity, talks about smile in the face of it. Suicide, he says, is the only real philosophical problem because that's, you can take control of death too, though that's his only way of imagining it. I want to invite you to a different way of thinking about the world, a richer way, a truer way, I firmly believe, where the stuff that we touch all around us right now is not the only thing that there is. And so read the psalm in that light. Now, structurally, the psalm has three different sections. I'm going to depart a little bit from the way that it's normally structured, the paragraphs. Each part speaks with, leads with his, my soul. He speaks about this inner thing, the thing that is me, that makes Josh, Josh. First, he speaks of his soul thirsting for God. He feels parched. We get that feeling. He's weary. He longs to be where God is found, where he is seeing God in his power and his glory, things that have been stripped from David himself. It's God's love, his steadfast love, fidelity, loyalty, the promise of God that he will care for his people, that is better than life, he says. And if you think that is overestimating, the whole army of saints and martyrs over the generations stands to agree with him. I would agree. It's the love that we remember at the Eucharist. The steadfast love just is God coming in Christ to conquer sin and death, the plague, to forgive me, even me, and to set the world right at the end. That's the steadfast love. And if that's not better than life, I don't know anything that would be. In the second section, then David says, my soul is satisfied. It's a bit striking. His thirsty and hungry soul is now satisfied even apart from the sanctuary. It's not that God only exists and touches the world in that place. Therefore, I can't have God. And notice that he doesn't say, my soul is satisfied with rice and beans. I grew up with rice and beans. It's what we ate all the time. It's not the same thing <laughs> as fat and rich foods. He's talking about red meat, honestly. He's talking about things that are expensive. You would rarely eat them, especially if you were in the wilderness. But even now, in the wilderness, he finds himself sated, satisfied, remembering the goodness of God. He's lying on his bed, sleepless at night, and gives himself to worship even there, even cut off. He tucks himself, I love this imagery, under the shadow of the wings of God. This is a place of safety. You've seen it, I'm sure, with birds, with chickens, the way they gather their young. It's a place for the babies to run when they're scared and they're safe. Even in the wilderness, I will tuck myself into God. Even while I long and wait, he doesn't know if he will ever return. And then the third section begins, my soul clings to you. Your right hand 
will uphold me. That's the strength of God will work for my behalf. Not my behalf as opposed to the rest of the world. It's I know the steadfast love, the loyalty of God for his people. And he speaks now of God bringing justice to the world. He's been driven into the wilderness where the jackals live by those who want to take his life. And the way the Bible often speaks of God bringing justice is this poetic, rhetorical means of you reap what you sow. And so those who want to dig David's grave find themselves planted in the ground. Those who wield the sword and drive him out perish by it. Those who have made him live among the jackals now themselves become portions for the jackals. It's not David sitting there really cranky. It's not like some sub-Christian, oh, he should just forgive. It's David longing for God to bring justice to the world. And I love that he speaks of it as though it were a sure thing. It will occur. It will happen in some form. We have seen so much longing for justice over the last year. So much longing for justice. Even if we're not always sure how to talk about it or how to reach for it or the right words or the right approach or if we agree with that or if we agree with this. So much longing for justice even if we're not always sure what it is. David lives in the midst of injustice, driven out by his son from his rightful throne. Take David in the wilderness, remove any faith, and you have Camus' stranger, cut off from the world. Without hope of justice, except maybe trying to raise a bigger sword. Power becomes the only option to negotiate, because this world, the imminent being all there is, Injustice is only confronted by power, and that's it. There's a modern writer that I love to read, uh, ta Coates. He spells out his own despairing of justice eloquently with an episode from his own childhood. He says, there was a time when I believed in an arc of cosmic justice. But when I was nine, some kid beat me up for amusement. And when I came home crying to my father, his answer, fight that boy or fight me, was godless. Because it told me that there was no justice in the world, save the justice we dish out with our own hands. My heart breaks with his words. Because I know the kind of injustice he's talking about. A lot of us have felt it and he's felt it. And the community that he speaks for, the black community in our country, has felt it. But there's a richer world in this psalm than just the justice that our own hands can dish out. A testimony to which the black church has spoken eloquently and strongly. Part of our joy, being the United Church, is that we can say, my brothers and sisters, I can be discipled there. What does it look like to live in the world longing for justice and feeling powerless? Friends, we're not the first ones to start feeling that in our country. When David prays the psalm, it's not a promise of health and wealth, but there is peace. 
The whole thing exudes peace, calm, trust, with longing. Those two don't fight with each other. He tucks himself into the shadow of God's wings because there is more to the world than just what we see and touch. Some of you have maybe never known that reality of a world bigger than just what we touch, justice more than what our hands can manage to dish out. And I want to invite you into that world this morning. This is sacred space. Maybe six hours ago, it was just a theater. <laughs> Two hours ago. And even if it feels more hollow than it used to, even for those of us who are able to be here, we get to touch things that are richer and deeper and fuller. There is a love of God that is better than life. The justice we long for is a good longing. It's not weak or shallow and will be satisfied by the one who has promised and is able to bring it. Otherwise, the longing for justice we all feel is a wretched thing, a disappointing and cruel hope. Now, for those of you who already know these things, your heart already echoes with the psalm, longing to be back into the fullness of worship and missing it. I want to encourage you with a couple thoughts here at the end. First, that you are not alone in longing to be in worship and kept from it by a foe that is greater than you can control. We're not the first to wish we could be back in worship as it once was. And should the Lord tarry, we are not the last. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and pastor. It's by God's grace that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly around God's word and sacrament in this world. He's saying, don't feel entitled to it. Not all Christians partake of this grace, he says. The imprisoned, the sick, the lonely who live in the diaspora, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. They know that visible community is grace. Part of what we get to discover is the truth of that. Knowing myself and knowing humanity and even Christians as I do, I'm sure we will take things, these things for granted again. Just give us a few more years. But hopefully not for some time. We long for God even more than we long for each other. But we also know that putting those two against each other is false. I long for Christ and his body. The two stand together. Those of you at home, you are missed here. We miss God together, being together, being part of one another, part of the life of the triune God somehow. But second, notice that he turns his own sleepless bed into a place for worship. He is not satisfied with rich food and meats as a passive, just sitting there hoping that it happens to him. It's like John in the book of Revelation at the close of the Bible. So many generations later, he's in exile in the Isle of Patmos, and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
I still marked the day and gave myself to worship. Megan Hill writes, banished to a remote island, John still made worship his highest priority. He couldn't be at church, but he could still make the church's calling his own. Set yourselves to the work of remembering the steadfast love of God while you are on your beds, while you are in your homes, while we are cut off. It's a wearying work to get up and to do that again and again for so long. To sit on the couch and watch a sermon, <laughs> to sit with your family, pray without ceasing doesn't come easily. And I want to encourage you again to that work. But finally, I want to encourage you to tuck yourself in while you wait under the shadow of his wings. To be at peace, to know that peace is available, to cling to God, knowing that his right hand will be at work in the world. Rest yourself in that promise. Do not trust in princes, in armies, in policies, in protests, all of which can be right in their own place. But they are never to be the object of your trust for justice or for your own satisfaction, fullness. Friends, rest in God even as we grow weary in the wilderness. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for this psalm. We're grateful for David, for the faith that you worked in him, as well as the skill with a pen. And that so many generations later, we can read this poem, this song, and we can sing it. Father, be merciful to your people. And I pray for those who have lived and felt cut off from the world in so many ways, who have walked through like a stranger and seen the frustration of the plague. Father, show yourself to them. I ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.